0: Well, it is as I said, Memorial Day. Um, time to remember, and I've reflected on the whole remembering thing, and and um, and how important it is for us to call to mind in the present what has happened in the past, and how important it is in the Bible, in terms of today. You know, if 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 we take the time to remember the sacrifices that have made been made, and From the little reading I've done in the last week, we've lost seven since the first of the year um, people in the line of um, the fight um, to call forward the past sacrifices for the sake of gratitude, uh, for the sake of remembering how costly our freedoms are. um, Remembrance is so important because it brings to the present the, the sacrifices of the past. And one of the things we've done as a family, I might have shared this in years past, but we haven't done it every year, but we'll we'll take our kids over to the um, the graveyard, and take flowers and just look at the graves and see which ones um, probably died in battle because of the math, and you can see which ones served, and uh, it's just a very sobering way to remember how how important um, our freedoms are and the preservation and protection of them, and that 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 that, that whole. Importance of remembering is is true in the scripture too. Um, I can't tell you how many times the Old and New Testament tell us to remember. You know, to call into the present what God's done into the past. What it, to call into the present what God's um, spoken in the past, for the sake of renewal. That is remembering brings a sense of renewed faith. It, it reminds us of all that God is, of, of how he's acted, how powerful he is, how big he is, how gracious he is. That's, that is, remembering brings renewal. And the opposite is also true, and that is when we forget. When we forget who God is, what he's done. When we fail to bring into the present what he's done in the past, well, then, then it, it brings faithlessness, and it brings fear, and it brings a sense of failure. That's what happens when we forget. It it leads us to faithlessness, to fear, and ultimately to failure. That's how important it is to remember. And we come to to an event or a string of events that are at the heart of the entire Old Testament, to which the psalmists and the prophets would look back and say, remember, don't ever forget this event. For the sake of bringing into the present who God is in the past and how he's acted, because it is a, a big God moment in history, is how I think of it, a big God moment in history. It's, a, it's a, a self-revelation of his character. And there's, you know, as I think of it, there's two primary ways that you can get to know somebody, be that God or, or another person. It's, it's, it's what they say or what they do. That is, words and actions, those are the primary ways by which we get to know each other, and that, those are the ways by which we get to know God. And up to this point in Exodus, and this is where we are as a church if you're new, uh, God has made himself known through his words what he's spoken to Moses. But beginning in chapter 7, verse 14, God is going to show himself not just to the ancient people, but to the world by way of his actions. That is, he's going to take central stage of history. Most of the time, God works in the silence and behind the scenes of providence, working through ordinary means to accomplish his, his purpose. But here, he comes full stage, and he works in a way that is bold, it's obvious, and it's unquestionable to the people who see it and witness it. So my prayer and hope for us this morning is to, to look at these and, 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 one, know who God is, and two, to know who we are in comparison to him. What we're talking about is the, the plagues of Egypt. The gloves come off, and there's no more stalling. There's no more objections. At this point, God takes center stage in history, and He acts in a way that is bold, that is obvious, and that is undeniable. And all of it in answer to a single, the most crucial question, I think, in the entire Bible a question that Pharaoh himself asked, and he asked, Who is the Lord? Who is this person called Yahweh? And these unfolding plagues, these judgments, answer that fundamental question. Who is God? Who is the Lord? Who is the one we worship? To let you know how we're going to proceed, I want to look at actually nine of these at, at a time, which means we're going to cram them together. Um, and trust me, it's not going to take two hours to do it, okay? I promise it won't be long. But what I want to do is I want to read the first one in its entirety. Uh, You'll notice if you reread, they they all kind of take the same basic format. Yahweh, or the Lord, tells Moses and Aaron what to do and what to say. They go to Pharaoh and they say it. Uh, Pharaoh rejects. A plague falls. And every time... Every time, the plague ends with the idea of Pharaoh hardening his heart. Every time. All right? And as you go on, you're going to sense just how um, maddening his hardness of heart is, and at the same time, how powerful um, God is. So... I'm going to read the first one and then the the other ones I'm going to summarize and just draw your attention to the irregularities or the things that are important. Kind of string them together like a, a set of pearls. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. The gloves are off and this is the very first one. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, there's the sacred name, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord. And what follows is the string upon which all these pearls uh, go. By this... You shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the waters of their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water, so that they become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. That's what he told them to do. Now he's, they're going to obey. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians, these are the sorcerers and the religious representatives of the gods of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the, the Nile with the water to drink um, for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. You have Team Yahweh, and you have Team Pharaoh. You have Team Yahweh consisting of two representatives, two elderly representatives, Moses and. Aaron, and you have Team Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the emperor, the king, and his his guild of sorcerers and magicians. That's that's those are the two teams, and at the center is a conflict. Pharaoh holds the people of Israel captive. Is unwilling to let them go, and so Moses comes to him um, on the bank of the river of the Nile in the morning. And I, the reason I think that that little detail is important is because um, Pharaoh has probably come to the Nile in the morning to offer his sacrifices to the, to the Nile god called Happy. Although Happy is not going to be too happy after what happens. The idea is there's worship happening. He comes to him and he says, you won't let my people go. So here's what's going to happen. I am going to take the staff and air is going to strike the water and it's going to turn to blood and everything in the Nile is going to die. And that's exactly what happens, strikes the water, everything in the Nile turns to blood, and all the water connected to it, and everything in it dies. Everything. Now, if you ever look at a map of Egypt, there is no such thing as civilization outside of, or... Um, very far from this tributary this, this, this river of life it, 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 is the, is the, it is what gives water to their agriculture it is like the central of their, center of their civilization it is the center of their agricultural flourishing it is the center of their economy and right here with one simple touch Yahweh has said this river is now blood and in a way kind of torpedoing their God what, is, what, is, what does Pharaoh do? But it, it ends with, and I should back up and say, do you notice, as I read that his magicians were able to do the same thing somehow, either by trickery or some kind of dark magic, they're able to replicate turning water to blood. So Pharaoh, excuse me, hardens his heart. He's like, eh, not a big deal. That's end of round one. Now here I'm going to summarize and just point out particular um, variations. So along comes plague number two, plague number two, frogs, an invasion from the Nile. Again, same basic pattern. God tells uh, Moses what to say, what to do. It comes to, to, and by the way, I have a little picture because um, the whole like flow of these these plays are. Intended not only to humble Pharaoh, but to completely demolish the gods of, of, of Egypt. This is a, um, um, an artifact that was uncovered that represented the, the god um, Heket, um, uh, fertility god of Egypt. that was in the shape of a, a frog of all things. Well, in God's telling Moses what to do, um, he tells him, go down, you tell him... Um, The frogs are going to invade the land everywhere. They're going to be, like, absolutely everywhere. They're going to be in your beds. They're going to be in your rooms. They're going to be in your your food and even in your ovens, right? Let's just picture that for a moment. Imagine yourself. We're not talking about your little pet frog, Fred. We're talking about swarms coming out of the Nile. Again, the Nile is struck. That's kind of round two. And I can tell you, if this happened in my house, you know, If there's a spider in one of the beds of my children or my wife, it's like nobody's going to sleep until that spider's dead. Right? Pretty sure that's true of you too. There's frogs everywhere. No one's asleep. This is aggravating, to say the least. Well, this one gets under Pharaoh's skin. Not the river turning to blood, but this one gets under his skin. Maybe it was Mrs. Pharaoh that said, you know, I can't handle frogs in my pantry. And so he calls Moses in. Pharaoh saying, listen. And by the way, you notice the magicians, if you read closely, the magicians could do this one too. They could replicate the frogs, which that makes a whole lot of sense, right? You add more frogs to a lot of frogs, it's just more frogs. But apparently, and this is an interesting little detail, apparently while the magicians, his, the representative of the gods, could replicate the frogs, they couldn't get rid of the frogs, which is why he calls in Moses and says, listen, I'll let your people go, just get rid of the frogs, Right? To which Moses responds, Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that, here's this phrase again, you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So I'll do it. He prays. And you know what? The next day, all the frogs die. Every one of them. And that's why Egypt is is, is smelly, right? But it ends with, And Pharaoh hardened his heart again. He wouldn't let God's people go. He reneged on what he said. It's round two. Here's round three. Again, same basic format. God tells Moses what to do, what to say. Um, Pharaoh's not going to comply initially. And then down comes the plague. Gnats everywhere. In the sense of the Hebrews, these are not just irritants as in You know, gnats, but they were biters, right? Like mosquitoes, everywhere. And again, these are annoyances. Nothing deadly is taking place. But this is the key detail, the variance that is important to note, is that from this particular plague, the gnats, um, even his own people, his own sorcerers, his magicians, come to him and say, and this is a bit reading between the lines, it's like, we can't redo this one. We could, we could replicate the blood situation, we could replicate the frog situation, but this one we can't do, implying that we don't have the divine resources to make this happen. So we discern from this, and this is their quote, 819, this is the finger of God, Pharaoh. Now just, again, how many rounds would you go? Like, if your people were saying, um, this is probably someone bigger than our gods. How would you respond? Well, Pharaoh responds, no, I'm not letting him go. He hardens his heart. And it puts it in different ways. He hardens his own heart. Um, His heart is hardened. It's in the passive, or God hardens his heart, which leads us to round four. Round four. And here, God unleashes a whole swarm of, of, of flies. Same basic pattern. It's Yahweh saying, Moses, this is what I want you to say. This is what I want you to do. He goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, of course, initially rejects, and then the plague falls. But here's the variance. Here's the, what amps it up. It says, on the day that I sat, or I will, but on the, let me learn English here in the next three seconds. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So the, the difference here is that The flies are going to be all over Egypt, but in Goshen, there's not going to be one. Now, whether or not Israel was um, exempted from all the plagues, we don't know for sure. But here, at least from a literary vantage point, it intensifies the miracle. Have you ever tried to train a fly how to, like, not go into a room? Like, if there's one thing we know about flies, they go everywhere. Here he's saying, listen, and you notice that that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. He declares the boundaries of the flies. You shall go here and no farther. So there's flies all over Egypt. And again, the sense in the Hebrews that these are biting flies, like the nasty ones that land on horses, right? They bite, they hurt. In response to this, uh, Pharaoh has this uh, momentary softness of heart. And he brings, brings Moses in He says, okay, I, I get it. Listen, your people can go, but they have to stay within the borders of Egypt. Have to stay within the borders of Egypt. So he's negotiating with God. You can go, but you can't go where you really want to go. And to make a long story short, uh, Moses says, essentially, no. Yahweh doesn't negotiate with Pharaohs. He doesn't bend to your terms. And at the end of this round four, it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Which leads to then round five. You've got to pause right here and say, like, how stupid can a guy be, right? (laughs) Round five. This time it gets deadly. Again, same basic pattern. The Lord tells Moses what to say, what to do. This time livestock are, are the... Victim of this particular plague, and by livestock don 't mean every animal, but we mean things that typically you keep on a farm or a farm in Egypt it would be camels and donkeys and horses and cattle and and sheep and Lord tells Moses, you go tell Pharaoh that if he doesn 't let my people go, that the livestock of Egypt are going to die of course pharaoh doesn 't listen and God drops the bomb, not a literal one, but a plague bomb, and and all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died, and Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. Livestock dead, livestock of the people of Israel still alive. Now let's just pause for a moment, I want you to think about the devastation to this point. The Nile, which is like the lifeblood of the economy and food for the Egyptians, is Everything's dead. Now the livestock are dead. Can you imagine someone telling people in Texas, guess what? Tomorrow, all your cattle are going to die. It would be an economic disaster. They all die, and yet again, it ends with Pharaoh's heart is hard. He won't let God's people go, which leads to the sixth. This one is personal to the skin of mankind, to the Egyptian skin, boils on, on man and beast. Again, same basic pattern. God tells Moses what to do. He throws some soot up in the air, and, and, and the people of Egypt, exempting the people of Israel, get these nasty boils that they have to scratch that that are painful and so forth, and the the. The variation of this particular one, you remember I told you there's team Yahweh and there's team Pharaoh. Is At this point, it's so bad, things get so bad, that his own magicians can't even stand before Moses. Like, the team Pharaoh is missing its whole guild of sorcerers. They, They can't even stand before Moses. The team is coming apart. And yet it ends with Pharaoh's heart hardened. Which leads then to round seven, unprecedented hail and fire. Again, same basic format. God tells Moses what to say, what to do. And here I want to pause and I want to actually read the text because it's really important because it gets to the purpose behind all of these things. In Yahweh's instruction to Moses as to what to say to Pharaoh, this is what he says. He says, I will send all my plagues. You can imagine this is Moses has to say this to to Pharaoh. I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. That you may know. You ask the question, who's Yahweh? Well, now I'm answering it. Five times I've answered it. And this is number seven. That you may know that there's none like me in the earth, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the face of the earth. That's his way of saying, listen, if I wanted to, I could have wiped you off from the face of the earth with a snap of a finger, but I didn't. I kept you around. Why? Why did all of these series of plagues have to happen? Here it is, verse 16, verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up since you were a baby. This is my purpose for your life. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 9 about the freedom of God to be God. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is the purpose. I'm going to show my power to you. And because I show my power to you, the most powerful man, human on earth, my name is going to go throughout the entire earth. My reputation, my glory to the whole earth. That gets at some of the purpose behind, well, it's the purpose behind the plagues. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and he recites these words. "If you Don't let my people go. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be hail and fire and everything outside is going to die in Egypt. And there's a hint of mercy in this one. Because the text tells us that the Egyptians themselves were warned, listen, if you fear the word of the Lord, take in your, your what's left of your animals and, and your servants. Bring them inside so they'll be protected in the senses that some Egyptians actually listened to the Lord and saved some of their animals and some of their servants. And this is a tip of God's mercy, right? God has always had a heart for the nations and here you get the sense of it. And the hail falls and the fire and everything outside Dies. Trees are broken, fruit trees are broken, and crops are crushed. Right? Nile, turn to blood, everything dies. Cattle uh, die. And now you have the crushing of crops and trees. And yet, Pharaoh, he refuses. To let the people go. He tries to negotiate again, but reneges, and he hardens his heart for the eighth time now. God comes, tells Moses what to do. Plague number eight, locust, one of the most severe. And here again, we have to focus on the actual text because of what it says. And God's purpose between, behind hardening of a man's heart or hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In his, instructions, in his initial instructions to Moses to go to Pharaoh, this is what he says. This is the message he is to convey. He says, I have, Yahweh, I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them. He didn't want to show just one. But all of them, because all of them display something unique about God's power. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. You ask the question, who's the Lord? And here's your answer. Well, Pharaoh refuses to listen, and God sends swarms of locusts into Egypt, not Goshen. And it says the sky was darkened, and you couldn't even see the ground. And they ate everything. Whatever was left from the hail, whatever green blade of grass or remaining branch that still had one piece of fruit on it, everything got cleaned out. The whole place is wiped clean. You kind of put that together, church. Like You realize he is completely demolishing the the economic foundation of a nation. They're, they're, They're... Their cattle in their river and all of their crops and their fruit trees. Everything is gone. And at this, again, he has an apparent repentance moment. Moses, I've sinned. Can you send the locusts away? I'll let your people go, but can you send... I want you to send out just the men. Again, negotiating with God to which Moses says, essentially, no... The Lord does not negotiate with Pharaohs. This is going to be a complete and absolute surrender on his terms. No question. It says that he hardened his heart again. Which then brings us to the final one that we're going to look at. The Passover deserves its own. Oh, you know, actually that part's really cool. I, I left it out. <laughs> At this point, when everything's gone, right, his own servants in verse, verse 7 of chapter 10, it's, it's like his own people are saying, will you just let them go that they may serve the Lord their God? Do you not understand, yet understand that Egypt is ruined? His own people are saying, it's ruined. It's over. Game over. Can't you see it? Right? His own people are telling him that. You would think you would get it. Together again, again, all of this kind of moves forward to to show you just how, how completely insane he becomes because of the hardness of his own heart. And then comes the final one we're going to look at is the darkness you can feel. Darkness. The primary god of the Egyptians was Ra, the god of sun, the god of light. The scenario is essentially the same because God's people, or excuse me, Pharaoh won't let his people go. It says, I am going to send three days of darkness, utter darkness, like pitch black. You're not going to be able to see a glow on the edge of the horizon. You're not going to be able to see anything, stars in the sky, a moon, nothing. It's going to be pitch black. You won't be able to see fingers in front of your face. Again, this is kind of a torpedo. Where is the God Ra when you need light? And in Israel, the land of Goshen, excuse me, there's going to be light, light right next to darkness. And yet... At the end of this, again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And that's, that's, that's really where, where, where we leave him. Nine rounds and one round to go. God has shown himself to be powerful in every area. So, so what is the, like, the cumulative effect of all nine of these? What is it supposed to teach us? What are we supposed to, to remember to come back to the beginning? What are we supposed to remember Two things, and I believe these are right on point with what I've emphasized through the the various plagues. One, this is the application part, what we're supposed to believe and take from it. These plagues teach us that the glory of God's name is his ultimate goal. The glory of God's name, his reputation going out, the declaration of his greatness and his power is in these plagues his primary objective. We've heard it over and over again. Um, That you may know that I am the Lord. That you may know that I am Yahweh. That you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Right? What that means is at the end of the day, like we... Let me back up. We tend to make other things central to God's great purposes other than like his, who, his greatness of, of what it means to actually be God. Um, as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking you know what? Uh, a modern day environmentalist would have a real hard time with these plagues. And, and let me just clarify, Christians should be people who care deeply about the environment because it's God's environment. He created it. He, he made us stewards of it. So Understand the, the the like the the manner in which I'm speaking, but people who make the environment the ultimate thing in this world would have a real hard time with the fact that God destroys flocks and horses and cows. He destroys all the fish of the rivers, and he destroys human life. He even allows his people to linger in slavery a bit longer when he could have liberated them quickly after one one fell swoop, but he doesn't. Why 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 this? elongation of of these these plagues that hurt so many things. Well, God wants to display the power of his name in all of these ways. There's something higher than just animal life. There's something higher than the life of plants. There's something higher than even the life of human beings. And that is the glory of his name. He puts himself on display. And what that has the effect of doing for us is it, it really magnifies God as the ultimate and us as dependent and at some level contingent. And that's true in the New Testament too. Like if if these series of judgments um, magnify the power of God, then the judgment of Jesus at the cross magnifies the grace of God. Why? For his name's sake. That's Ephesians chapter 2 and Paul says, so, so why, what's the governing ultimate purpose behind us being made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, and seated with Christ? I'll tell you, he tells us, so that, and this is the grand purpose, so that in the coming ages, God might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus he wants to show us the, the glory and the wonder of his grace forever and ever, which is the joy of the Christian heart. It's, but he's at the center of it. He's not man-centered. He's not animal-centered. He is glory-centered. And in so doing, he reveals the greatness of his power and also the greatness of his love and his grace. But he's number one church. He always has been. And that is crystal clear in these these plagues. Second, and this is the last, is these plagues teach us that God exercises supreme authority over every sphere of creation. I failed to mention that um, in plague seven and nine that God told Moses, you stretch out your hand to the heavens And a storm will come. And you stretch out your hand to the heavens and I'll shut off the lights. So you have God telling Moses, stretch out your hand over the waters. And what happens? It turns to blood and everything dies. You strike the dirt, which is what he did with the gnats, and up comes the the gnats. And you stretch out your hand toward the heavens. I'll turn off the lights and I'll bring a storm. Here you have the waters, the earth, and the heavens. Which sums up all of existence. In other words, God controls and commands all of it. He basically unravels, undoes, and implodes the whole entire Egyptian religious system at this moment. I'm sorry, but the Nile is mine. The insects, they are Mine. The frogs are mine. The cattle are mine. The storms are mine. The light and the darkness is mine. There is no place where I do not exercise immediate and direct jurisdiction. Even your own heart, Pharaoh, which is part of the reason why I think it says that God hardened his heart. There is no place on planet earth that God does not govern no place. And that is not, church, that is not like, that is not ivory tower truth. That is bedrock truth. That is, that, that's, a, that, that's a foundation upon we as Christians have to stand every day. That is bedrock truth that we have to remember every day. That there is no place where he does not exercise jurisdiction, be that political, be that in the the, the, the womb where a child is being formed, be that in a backbone that is fused and unfused together, be that romantic relationships or fertility, the fact of the matter is God stands over and is involved in all of these things. Bar none. And why is it important to remember that? Because we so easily forget. You know, my father was here at Mother's Day and he said, Danny, you know, a lot of my elderly friends... Christians they are freaking out about what's happening in our country. Freaking out. I get it. There's a difference between being concerned and mourning versus being freaked out. And you just want to like kind of ask the question, do you remember who the Lord is? Like really? Because if you did, <laughs> then your main attitude would not be that of anxiety or stress or worry about what's happening in the world. It would be, you know what, no matter what happens, God is God. No matter what happens, God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even if the mountains get thrown into the sea. That's confidence in this truth and why we need to remember it over and over again. This is a moment in history Where God comes in full view. And he says, this is my power. And there is no place where I do not exercise dominion. Trust in me. And that's our responsibility. And and that's why we are called to remember, remember, remember. So that in remembering there might be a renewal of our confidence and faith in the supremacy of our God. That's why these are here. For us to remember and know. That's why this is here. So that we can remember the day in which God acted in power to bring down the powers of hell and bring down the powers of sin and powers of death all through the sacrifice of his own son to bring us home. Most of you know how we do this. Our time is short. Um, if you're a follower of Christ, even if you're visiting from an outside church, we welcome you at the table to celebrate the bread and the, um, and the, and the cup, uh, representations of God's act of power and mercy through Christ, uh, we have both gluten-free and regular bread. Um, if I could have those who are serving communion come up as I pray, I'm going to pray and then feel free to come forward and let's remember. Lord, as I prayed at the beginning, I pray that you break through our doubt, break through our skepticism, and teach our hearts once again that you are God. And your name will be exalted in the earth, and in so doing you will Lift us up, and you will raise us up, and you will make us someday physical sons and daughters of yours in your presence. And I pray in these moments that we have to remember that you would revitalize and renew our faith through remembering what Christ did for us at the cross. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.